0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower who supply plant based products for both organic and chemical free gardening and your houseplants. Hello, hello, hello and welcome back to this, the very last episode in the current series of the Mike the Gardener gardening podcast. It's rushed by so quickly and I've had so much fun chatting to some great gardening folk. And I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I have putting this together. In an action-packed series, I've spoken to Dr Anton Rosenfeld about soil. We headed off to Arundel Castle to chat to head gardener there, Martin Duncan, and also spoke to fellow head gardeners, Fran Clifton at Hillier's Arboretum, and of course, Lucy Chamberlain and Saul Walker, whose Talking Heads Gardening podcast is one of my favourites. We've also had some fascinating plant specials this season, including daffodils, sweet peas and, of course, last week we chatted about hookahers. And just a few weeks ago, we chatted to the lovely Marilyn Stevens, who told us everything about the Rose of the Year competition. Do you remember that one? Tess from Ladybird Plant Care talked to us about organic pest controls and we spoke to Victoria of the Young Horticulturalist of the Year competition. And of course I've had some great gardening personalities join me on the podcast including former Blue Peter gardener Chris Collins, author and garden designer Jack Wallington and talking of authors we also chatted to Lula Ellender who told us about her brand new book Grounding. And last but certainly not least I spoke to gardening legend Roy Lancaster about his wonderful life in gardening and horticulture. Now if you've missed any of these episodes they're all available through your preferred podcast provider and of course there's series 1 and 2 with even more great guests and chats and plant specials. So today I'm heading off to the spectacular Exbury Gardens in the New Forest in Hampshire where I chat to head gardener Tom Clark. Now if you haven't been to Exbury then you must. It's a breathtakingly beautiful garden and at this time of year with the rhododendrons and azaleas its beauty defies belief. Tom and I chatted about the garden, its creator Lionel de Rothschild, how to look after rhododendrons, well in fact everything you need to know about growing rhododendrons and indeed azaleas and lots, lots more. I started our
1: chat by asking Tom how long he's been at Exbury. Welcome to Exbury. Uh, I've been here about six years now, so this is coming up for my sixth summer. So yeah, I started almost this time, yeah, six years ago. And where were you before you came here? So I used to work for nearly 20 years for the National Trust. So I was lucky enough to do an apprenticeship with the National Trust when I left school. And then I'd worked in various different National Trust gardens. I actually started in a a place called Cork Abbey, which is a a restoration of a Victorian walled garden. So very different uh, woodland gardening, which is what I do now. But after graduating, I went down to... uh, to Cornwall for the National Trust in a garden called Trellisic, which is just outside uh, Truro. Beautiful, Very nice, a sort of classic Cornish woodland garden on the banks of a foul estuary, and that's when I really sort of became interested and fell in love with, you know, the sort of temperate woody plants, you know, that we grow in our lovely woodland gardens, so all the azaleas, rhododendrons, and camellias. So it was really, you know, I was lucky enough to work in Cornwall for near, for about 17 years, I think, and then I ended up coming to Exbury. So.
0: so you certainly know what you're doing when it comes to woodland plants, and there's plenty of woodland plants here.
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah, Exbury, I mean, there's nearly 230 acres of garden, and when Lionel de Rothschild created the garden, you know, he, he specifically wanted to create a woodland garden, so that was, you know, if you think the uh, Edwardian, uh, Edwardian era was the sort of golden age of woodland gardening, you know, where a lot of these big, wealthy garden owners were busy filling up their, you know, they had these existing landscapes, more of a sort of, you know, very romantic, picturesque style style sort of capability brown sort of gardens and then they were busy filling them up with all these fantastic plants which were coming in from the far east and from the himalayas and from china and that part of the world so yeah liner was very much part of that sort of woodland gardening school of gardening really so that's so when did he create Exbury? well he bought Exbury in 1919 so it's just over 100 years old and he bought it specifically to create a, a woodland garden so he bought a property just down the road at inchmary house which is actually on the solent and it's very dry, quite windy, and he bought that to he moved from Ascot, where all the Rothschild family lived, and he wanted to create a, a woodland garden so he he bought Inchmere House, but it was very windy it wasn't really suitable and I think there was a there was a post box outside his house. And uh, he wanted to remodel his driveway. I mean, basically, the Royal Mail said, we don't care how rich or influential you are, you can't move a post box. (laughs) So when Exbury came up for sale, which was the neighbouring estate, he thought, right, fine. So he bought Exbury, which was about six square miles of woodland on the sort of, by the Bewley River. And, uh, you know, he bought it because he wanted to create a garden. So from that was his real... uh, you know, intention from the outset. So he was very much a sort of single-minded sort of character, I think. And that's, you know, he was determined to build a, you know, the best woodland garden in the country. And, you know, he spent about 20 years, for the interwar years, uh, ex- you know, the grand expansion of Exbury happened over those sort of 20 years. So most of what you see dates back from that time, really. The bigger trees obviously predate Lionel's time at Exbury, but yeah. every, the understory was all sort of done in the 20s and 30s.
0: And it's uh, just a, beautiful garden i mean we've come this is at the end of april the azaleas the rhododendrons are just stunning it's and, and a little bit early as we were saying just earlier
1: yeah that's right it's been a funny season so things have been they were it was a, a late year really a late season to start and then uh, we had a few cold nights and that slowed things down and then suddenly it's got very warm and sunny so everything has come out at once it's a bit like being kept in a fridge and then all being uh, heated up at once so yeah it's, it's looking fantastic and uh You know, Liner was very keen to create a sort of almost like a giant herbaceous border. You know, it was part of the Arts and Crafts movement. This idea of woodland gardening—it's quite easy now when you wander around the garden as a visitor just to think it's a sort of a woodland, really. But it is a designed landscape, and Liner was very keen on creating—you know—that sort of idea of almost, you know, what Gertrude Jekyll was doing with herbaceous borders. People like Liner wanted to create a whole woodland. So the idea of using, working with nature, so having the big mature. Native oak trees as the overstory, and then underplanting with big drifts of azaleas. You know, areas of wildflowers. So we've got lots of bluebells coming up, and then mature trees and lots of different maples for the different sort of texture of leaf and shape. So it was, it was all about creating this sort of giant tapestry, really, which is you know what we enjoy now.
0: Well, tapestry is definitely the word. We're stood under. What's the tree we're stood under here at the moment?
1: So this is a cedrus lebanai so a cedar of Lebanon. And uh, there's two cedars in this part of the garden, both planted in about 1730, so pre Rothschild. Some of the earliest cedars planted outdoors in the UK, so really early introductions. And the cedar of Lebanon has got this lovely tiered uh, branches, Mm. which uh, you know you see on the sort of the silhouette on the Lebanese flag. And uh, it's got this lovely big monopodal trunk, and uh, all these fissures in the bark because they collect where they grow in the Middle East. They uh, the only precipitation they get really is very fine snow in the winter, so it collects on these lovely flat branches and then trickles down all these fissures in the bark oh, to water I see. the stem. Okay. Uh, you know, when when people talk about planting trees to stop sort of drought, you, you assume they're talking about sucking water out of the ground, which yeah. trees obviously do. But they also store a huge amount of water in their in the bark themselves. So a tree this size can store several hundred litres of water. You know, so as it's trickling down through all those cracks in the bark to get to the roots, so they're really good at holding onto water.
0: I mean, structurally, it's just incredible looking up at the branches above. You say these uh, horizontal branches, Uh, just amazing, incredible, stood underneath this massive thing. And then underneath that, you have the understory of azaleas. There's azaleas, there's pinks, there's roses, different colours. You've got um, the acer in front of us and then the bed of bluebells underneath that as well. So there's interest no matter where you look.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic these big cedars it's, i always think it's a bit like being in the land of the giants when you're standing under a tree this size you know they are fantastic and yeah it goes back to you know when lionel laid out the garden he was quite a particular chap i think probably quite a difficult man by all accounts uh i didn't realize until i started but Exbury's had quite a lot of head gardeners over the years so uh <laughs> so very i mean- single-minded and i think he pretty much managed the garden himself so he had lots of different head gardeners but he was he described himself as a banker by by hobby, but a gardener by trade, you know. So he spent a lot of time, you know, in the garden himself, managing it and laying it out. And he did have a very clear vision of how he wanted it to look. So, you know, the, a lot of the azaleas, particularly in the early days, they were planted in big drifts of colours. So there was a lot of thought going into the colours of plants you know it wasn't just a matter of chucking them all in and uh, seeing what came into flower you know it was it was all sort of laid out to make this beautiful sort of tapestry so
0: what had been his experience of designing gardens before this then
1: Uh, well he he grew up in Ascot uh, in the home counties and his the head gardener that he of his family home was a chap called Hudson And Hudson was the first person ever, I think, to get full marks in the RHS uh, Master of Horticulture exam. So he was one of these classic... That's sort of tail end of a Victorian era. He was one of these classic Victorian sort of polymaths, really, who who, who bred all sorts of plants. Uh, He bred water lilies, I think, as well as uh, orchids and uh, grew lots of other things. So Lionel had spent a lot of time as a young man with uh, Mr Hudson, who is his sort of gardening mentor, I think. And Hudson was actually a friend of William Robinson, who wrote the book The Wild Garden, which sort of kick-started that whole woodland gardening uh, fashion off, really. So, you know, he was exposed to that from a young age. So he was always a very keen gardener. And uh, he also... Rhododendrons weren't his only interest. He also... we. Exbury had the world's biggest collection of orchids as well had 28,000 orchids in its collection at one time I didn't know
0: that and I'm a sort of fairly regular visitor here with it being just down the road from me Uh, that's that's news to me
1: yeah it was uh, I think it was sold off towards the end of the Second World War to raise money for the Red Cross. So it was a huge collection. I think one of them went for about ten thousand pounds, which at the time, you know, was a huge amount of money. Yeah, so that's big money, yeah. Big money. Someone had I think someone had asked Lionel sometime in the nineteen thirties if he'd ever considered growing orchids and he said, No, I haven't. And by the end of a decade he'd got twenty eight thousand and built three huge great orchid houses for the collection. So it goes to show the sort of level of his uh obsessiveness I suppose we would say now so I mean he was one of these sort of characters you know he was very single minded uh, Are there are
0: there orchids still in the garden anywhere?
1: Yeah we've got orchids we've still got remnants, a lot of st- still some of the cymbidiums which are easier to grow they don't need all the sort of uh, a lot of the heat and humidity yeah. that the, a lot of the other more subtropical orchids need. So we've got a remnant of his collection, and we do a display every year in the Five Arrows Gallery, which is next to the house of our orchids uh, in the spring. So we do have a few, just as a sort of nod to the collection, but I don't have time for 28,000, 28, you can imagine. Uh, yeah, no, that was that was a huge collection.
0: So you're you're quite good on growing orchids now?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert, by all means, no, no, I'm in most of my most of my expertise is in sort of rhododendrons and sort of temperate woody plants I suppose but we do have staff that look after the orchids we also have a big collection of nareens as well Narine oh okay sirenus, right yeah yeah very like nice a sort of, almost a house plant really so we've got a big collection of those as well so i mean i think the rothschild family historically have got a sort of collecting gene you know a lot of members of the family were either interested in Collecting fleas, you know. One of them was an expert on the fleas. Um, one of them was an expert on, uh, you know, the, the morphology of fleas. And uh, I'm you know, itching with, now. Yeah, various <laughs> other sort of eccentric collections, art, big art collections, okay. and uh, I think Tring House, which was a Rothschild family home. Yeah, yeah, heard, yeah. Huge collection of natural history, uh, well, birds and uh, stuffed birds and things like that. So traditionally, you know, the family did collect lots of things, and Lionel's passion was plants, really.
0: Yeah, Preferable over the fleas, definitely. Um, So in terms of his early designs, do any of those designs, are they still around? Do you have access to those? Uh,
1: Interestingly, well, yes and no. So when Lionel laid the garden out, he he did it quite organically. He's basically, where we're standing now was the first bit of a garden that he laid out. So he started by the house, which is just next to us, and he basically spread out down through the garden. So he didn't employ any architects or landscape architects to design the garden. He basically created these big raised beds uh, so he would plant you know a big specimen tree like the magnolia behind us and then large rhododendrons and then sort of put a a hedge of azaleas around the outside because the expiry is quite flat to create all that sort of hidden interest there's not much topography so he created all these big island beds mm. which you would sort of walk around and feel like you were getting lost and then come back onto the main path so yeah, yeah he didn't really have any architects so there's no real designs but i mean there's loads and loads of correspondence he spent most of his time he actually lived in london but he came down for the weekends at Exbury, but his weekend seemed to start on like Thursday afternoon on finish on sort of Tuesday morning. That sounds like a
0: good weekend, doesn't it? Spent
1: a long weekend here, but when he was in the bank, he did, a lot of his correspondence, I guess when he should have been working, he was writing to all his gardening friends. So they all got put in the bank archive. So I've had several trips up to the archive in London to Rothschild Bank. They've got this huge, great archive full of mainly, you know, invoices and banking stuff, whatever that is. Uh, but also they've got all Lionel's personal uh, correspondence. So they've got letters to George Forrest and Reginald Farrar. And wow, that's all his gardening friends all over the country yeah, swapping yeah. seeds. So there's loads of conversations and talking about, but most of it is sort of plant orientated. They're talking about swapping plants and what's flowered when and done well. There's not really any sort of designs. Because I think, like I said, that, that's happened quite organically really. He'd already got an existing woodland. So, and he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to create. So, he basically just started at one end and just carried on going right down through the garden.
0: So, do you know where he sourced his plants from? Because I say there's a fantastic collection of rhododendrons, azaleas, magnolias, camellias.
1: Yeah, we do. Yeah, so some of it was collected in the field. So, he sponsored George Forrest for several of his trips. Uh, Frank Kingdom Ward, as well, was the sort of last, I suppose, one of the last great plant hunters. Uh, so uh, some plants were wild collected, but he also had a lot of exchanges with other gardens, you know, places like Bodnant and the the Williams family in Cornwall, P.D. Williams, who he considered his sort of horticultural sort of uh, godfather, he described him as, down in Cornwall. So he's, there was a lot of plant material swapped between Exbury and some of the, you know, fantastic Cornish woodland gardens, right. Lord, Ab- Lord Aberconway at Bodnant. So there was lots of these guys swapping plants around, but he also... You know, interestingly just bought plants from nurseries so Hilliers, you know had a huge nursery back in the 20s and 30s so would this know, be the
0: hilliards in southampton
1: yeah, yeah it was yeah so there's lists of you know lots of trees uh, for the shelter belt and stuff like that came from just local nurseries as well as stuff they grew themselves and he also converted what would have been the walled garden when he bought Exbury into cold frame. so they had about four acres of nursery here as well when they just produced you know lots of their own plants so it would have come all from all over the place I don't
0: know why, but it seems strange thinking that he would go to a garden centre yeah, to know, buy plants. Then, that
1: I guess it? that's just what they did, you know. So he bought a lot of plants. For there was Waterer's Nursery in Sussex as well, okay. or Surrey, I think. So Waterer's was a big rhododendron grower. So he started. He actually started planting other people's rhododendrons. He didn't start hybridising all his own straight away, I don't think. So he planted other people's rhodies, and then you know, as time went on, he started to breed his own as well. So it was a mixture. Yeah, but there's lots of, you know, hundreds of invoices from lots of, you know, normal, what you'd imagine would be sort of garden centres as well, so... Yeah. You, you can't
0: imagine how much money has been spent on developing this incredible garden.
1: No, well, I mean, I, can, I, I, I was told that he spent £100 million in 20 years, so whether that's... I mean, that's not the equivalent, you know, that's how much he spent in the 20s and 30s, so that's everything from doubling the size of a village to accommodate the workforce remodeling the house and the actual laying out the whole garden all the glass houses which we've still got sort of remnants of they were all actually fabricated on site so he had his own team of blacksmiths to build his glass houses. you know his orchid houses were built to very specific requirements mm. and the rhodo houses for hybridizing you know they would think nothing of lifting a semi-mature rhododendron just before it came into flower so they could force it to get the pollen to do the hybridizing so you know it was a huge horticultural effort i think about 150 gardeners no 150 workers yep. and then 70 trained gardeners that was for sort saw- of then they had teams of masons and they had a sawmills as well so you can soon 100 million pounds sounds a lot but yeah, you burn but through a lot of money doing it doesn't that. go
0: very far no, it does it as, far. as we all know now in, yeah. in this day
1: and age so talking about gardeners how many gardeners do you have working here for you i've got there's about 10 of us i say about 10 because a couple of those are part time and we've got students so in, in terms of man hours, it's probably about 10, 10 full time staff, but a few of those are part time. I've got a fantastic team of volunteers who probably nearly 30 volunteers now who come and help as well. So nowhere near the numbers that Lionel had, but you know, in a way, it's quite, I was reflecting on that the other day, it's quite hard to compare, you know. In terms of man hour. If you think of how it doesn't always feel like it, but we're much more efficient these days. If you think what you can do with a mini digger as opposed to a load of men with pickaxes, or yeah, yeah. you know, a ride-on lawnmower compared to a scythe. Yeah, I guess when you when you say that, it's so those yeah, two, big differences. It, you know, it's not really fair to compare. I mean, I would love to have more staff, definitely. Yeah. You know, but you know, ten gardeners. That's still a lot of man hours every you know a week of horticulture going into a garden. So we are lucky looking that way
0: so in terms of maintaining the gardens obviously mother nature throws the odd sort of gale and or hurricane in here and there how do you then decide how to change the garden are you very are you very faithful to Rothschild's original design or have you actually stepped away from that at times to progress and develop
1: yeah well that's an interesting question I mean I spend a lot of my that's a lot of my my working life is spent sort of you know strategically managing the garden for future the garden's 100 years old so we want to give a garden another 100 years at least or 200 years of future so uh you know it's not although it's a historic garden within that you know plants die and things need to change so it is quite dynamic it's more dynamic than it would look from when you're visiting uh, but the actual core of what is important is the woodland garden so we don't want to do anything that would be detrimental to that so the actual sort of integrity of a historic woodland garden is really important and uh, you know I've got a board of trustees as well so it's not just down to me uh, I was
0: going to say overnight. sort of who makes the ultimate yeah, so decision checks
1: and balances you know and we do have a sort of strategic plan for the future uh, and but within that you know gardens are you know if we're nothing if not a, we are a visitor attraction we need to attract people who need to come and pay expiry is a registered charity so any money that we make just goes through to maintaining the garden really so we need to you know we need to encourage visitors and we also need to give them reasons to come back and to change and we need to adapt you know climate change is a massive issue for us in a yeah very gardens. much so yeah uh, so you know we do need to grow maybe some things differently and do things differently and adapt to you know pests and diseases and staffing issues and all the things that you know any business has to worry about so we have to be mindful of that but within you know the garden itself there are new gardens so we've built, built a brand new garden for our centenary but that's within a uh, there's a yew hedge just behind us and it was an old tennis court so you can't see it from the rest of the garden so that gave us an opportunity to create a very sort of contemporary, modern garden, it's got lots of sun-loving, spiky perennials, so it's much more contemporary, mm. and it's also much more drought-resistant, and that it's summer interest. So you know, a, a spring garden is great in April and May, but we want people to come walk right through the year. So a garden like that, it gives you a chance to do something, uh, you know, new and modern, but it it doesn't detract from the rest of a garden. So when we do redevelop areas, you know, we try and be as, you know. As mindful as possible of doing it in a sensitive way, but that doesn't stop us. You know, I worked for the National Trust for 20 years, which is a very, you know, a well-known and a fantastic conservation charity. Yeah. But you know, they tie themselves in knots. Uh, you know, looking after what what they've got, which is important. But if you're not careful, you do end up. Co- curating your own creation you know something that was planted in the 50s and 60s might look like it's 100 years old but it's not so you know where do you draw the line it's a bit like an onion isn't it you've got various layers yeah, of time and yeah one, one layer of time isn't necessarily more or less important than another so you you know you have to be able to move forward and do stuff without yeah because i
0: guess you nice. don't want it to be a monument it's got to be it, as you say you pay respect to the past but yeah. you want to change it and adapt it for the future exactly.
1: I mean it's a living thing so it's you know it doesn't stand still and it's a bit like uh, when I used to work at Trelissac my uh, old head gardener Barry Champion he was one of these classic old school Cornish head gardeners you know He'd worked there for sort of 40 years when I met him and he was coming up to his retirement. And he used to say, you know, it's almost, it's like a, it's a bit like a sort of oil tanker, you know, a garden. When you're managing it, if it's going in the right direction, yeah. that's fine. But if it stops or it turns around, it takes years it takes to get years it takes years to actually so do that, yeah. You do need to keep some level of momentum going forward, replanting, you know, the old Chinese expression, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, you yeah, need yeah, to yeah, be putting new plants in and keeping, you know, because if you stop... You know, it's a year that you're not growing a tree. It's a year wasted, isn't it? So you do need to sort of keep going forward. So, yeah. So
0: the rhododendrons and azaleas, let's let's talk numbers. How many shrubs have you got here in the garden? Because as far as the eye can see, it's just a sea of rhododendrons, azaleas, other shrubs as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've, I, well, I've got a database uh, which doesn't have everything that's in the garden, is on the database, but it gives you a good idea of what's on it. And there's about 26,000... Plants on the database, so that may be you know lots of the same thing, not necessarily different plants. About thirteen thousand of those are rhododendrons, so it's about thirteen thousand rhododendrons and about six thousand different rhododendrons. So that's that's
0: big numbers. That's a
1: lot. And if I mean I've got the rhododendron register on my desk in the office, uh, which isn't everybody's uh, cup of tea for. <laughs> my it, but that's got twenty-eight thousand registered rhododendron hybrids in it. So that gives you an idea of how many. And I think that's been updated now. So there's probably more like 30,000 registered. uh, They're still breeding them like mad in continental Europe. So the Germans particularly are breeding a whole new generation of rhododendrons. So there's at least 30,000 just rhodies out there. So Uh, those
0: new introductions, are they introductions that you will bring here to Exbury?
1: Yeah, some of them, yeah. I mean, what the Germans have been doing, which is very interesting, especially for us with a changing climate Obviously they have a continental climate, so a hotter summer and a colder winter. They've been growing a new generation of rhododendrons which are more drought tolerant, also tolerant of a higher pH, so better for not such acid soil. It's yeah. a bit of a stretch to say they'll grow in limey soil, but I mean they are better. But
0: heading in that direction yeah. slightly.
1: And I think for the first sort of fifty years or so, the nursery trade, or well, probably hundred years, spent a lot of time breeding the parts of a rhododendron that we could see you know so improving flowers and you know making them look nicer but they didn't spend much time on the root systems because most rhododendrons are grafted they just used to use rhododendron ponticum which suckered and isn't a great plant to grow in the first place
0: ponticum's the one that we see the purple flowers is which is a weed really yeah
1: it is yeah it grows wild throughout you know sort of a lot of well, in the new forest snowdonia's full of it places like that uh, but the germans have spent a lot of time breeding a whole new generation of root stocks so you know rootstocks are boring unless you're a gardener you, yeah. don't, you don't see them uh, but it's what it's for. powerhouse for the plant really so they've bred a whole generation of rootstocks which are much more uh, drought tolerant and uh, tougher really so probably going forward in the future will be better for growing you know rhododendrons even in our you know we get much drier summers certainly well, yeah we were
0: saying earlier how sort of like how dry it's been in the last couple of weeks Why
1: uh, april's april is one of the driest months for us now of the year you know when you're trying to grow things a dry April is probably the worst time to have a drought because it's mm. when it's putting on, trying to put on new growth. It's trying to put all this energy into flowering to then yeah yeah dried out isn't great. So you know, a tough rootstocks are definitely going to help with that. So you know, plant breeding is is just as important as what's going on below ground. And I think you know, as gardeners, we've always obviously known uh, how important the soil is. But yeah, very much so. The nursery trade has sort of you know spent most of his time growing things that look pretty, but
0: so in terms of the rhododendrons, is there a national collection of rhododendrons anywhere? And are you close to that or? Uh, no, because
1: it's such a massive group of plants. Yeah. You know, to have a national collection, you're supposed to have, I don't know, what the percentage. It's quite of, high, isn't quite it? Percentage. I think. If, if, if there's 28,000, then uh, good, good luck with that. But no, so there isn't a national collection of rhododendrons. Some people have got national collections of certain particular groups of rhododendrons. Mm. Uh, but there's no one place where you can uh, grow them all.
0: You you talk about groups, and can you give us, a, a, a what, what are the groups of rhododendrons that we maybe need to know about?
1: Right, well, there's there's probably, there's about a thousand different species of rhododendrons, so that's just what grows naturally in the wild, everywhere from North America through, there's a couple of European species, ponticum being one of them. I was going
0: to say ponticum is one of those, obviously, those yeah. in
1: bit, bits of Spain and around the Black Sea, and then all the sort of, the main bulk of the, of the Himalayas, you know, is where most rhododendrons come from so within that there's lots of different subsections because it's such a big group a big genus about a thousand species they're chopped up into subsections and uh, so people for example people always ask what's the difference between a rhododendron and azalea but one of those subsections are what we would call azaleas so azaleas are rhododendrons yeah yeah. it's just they've got slightly different flower structure less than five stamens makes it an azalea they've also got softer hairier leaves Uh, so within those subsections things like azaleas is just one group of them uh, yeah, so there's lots of different subsections.
0: So when it comes to rhododendrons that we might plant in our gardens at home, what what species do, do they generally fall under? Or again, are there a number?
1: There's a number, but really, if you imagine, you know, these great gardens back in the 20s and 30s, they had tonnes of space, tonnes of, well, the three elements, you need lots of time, lots of space and lots of money to have a woodland garden, really. Yeah. Which isn't, you know, post-war Britain, everyone had much more smaller suburban gardens, trying to grow a... A 30-foot rhododendron wasn't really very useful in the nursery.
0: (laughs) No, maybe not.
1: So there's a whole load of new hybrids. There's a rhododendron called Yakuishimenum, which is a lovely little, rounded, fantastic dome-shaped shrub that comes from well, comes from Japan, one of the islands just off the coast of Japan, and that's been the parent of most of the small, sort of, rounder, compacted rhododendrons. tend to have Yakuishimenum as a parent, and it's also quite tough. So it'll grow in full sun. It's uh, there's a, it's got a lovely sort of pink bud and then a lovely white flower and that's been used for lots, so that's a really tough good starting point good to her but yeah but i mean there's lots of there's lots of smaller alpine rhododendrons which would grow on the top of a sort of windswept mountain somewhere which are quite happy growing in a you know in your back garden in a pot or oh you know, i didn't
0: really. know about alpine rhododendrons yeah. that's a new one on me
1: yeah and then there's lots of little lovely some fantastic lovely also got quite nice scented foliage as well so if you were to imagine walking on a scottish sort of grouse moor where you see lots of heather yeah, yeah. in the himalayas they would be dwarf rhododendrons so they come from a similar sort of climate so okay. above the tree line in the Himalayas you'll get all these lovely little dwarf alpine rhododendrons, which are perfect for our climate
0: and again that sort of acidic soil sort of preference yeah. for those
1: as well all of most rhododendrons in fact well all rhododendrons really need acidic soil uh, which isn't so much of a problem if you're growing a small rhododendron because you can grow it in a pot quite easily. Mm. So, you know, ericaceous compost or you can make your own compost. We mix our own compost up with a mixture of sort of topsoil and leaf mould. If you don't want to use peat, that's quite a good yeah. way yeah. of doing it. Yeah. For, for small rhododendrons in a little raised bed or in a pot because they have a very shallow root run, so they're not going to put in big tap roots. So, they will grow quite happily in pots for, for years, really.
0: And in terms of planting partners, I mean, obviously here you've got rhododendrons and azaleas growing together with the uh, aces. But what other planting companions could you consider for rhododendrons in a, a, a garden at home?
1: I mean, the, the great thing about rhododendrons really is for diversity. You know, there's so many different species uh, and they've all got different habits and different. So it depends really what you want. You I mean, you can grow them as the overstory. You can grow them in the back of a border. Or you can grow them under things. So some of the dwarf rhododendrons, you know, they'll do. They'll tolerate quite dense shade. So you can grow them, you know, in shady areas as ground cover. Yeah, yeah. You can also, I mean, the azaleas are quite good clipped formally as well. So you can trim them into nice cloud shapes and balls and things. So, uh, okay. You know, I've, some, not, I've not
0: actually you know, seen some that. Some
1: azaleas you can prune them quite formally. You know, even run over them with a hedge trimmer if you're feeling brave. Once you've. Uh, <laughs> so, so you can, you know, it depends what you want really. But there's yeah. probably a rhododendron for everyone. I would have thought.
0: The one thing with rhododendrons is there a technical term for the flowers? Is it a truss? It
1: is a truss. Yeah. So a truss, but quite. The, yeah. The, the truss is for collection. The inflorescence, which is the collection of uh, individual flowers. The individual flowers in rhododendron world is called a truss. Really. Yeah.
0: And I've, the one thing I've noticed when I've been here, there are different types of flowers. They've got those beautiful bell-shaped flowers, which always catch my attention.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, there's lots of different shaped flowers. Like the big campanulate ones that you mentioned, the lovely big bell-shaped. Things like sinograndi has got a huge, great bell-shaped flower. Some of the smaller ones, um, there's something one called Kesei, which is a lovely, almost looks like a Nifofia, a very long sort of thin trumpety uh, sort of flower. Okay. So there's all sorts of different flowers shapes and sizes and colors so they really are a you know a very diverse group of plants which is what makes them so interesting really
0: any particular favorites for yourself are there any that you sort of find yourself going back to
1: yeah i mean i i like the two extremes really so i love the little dwarf alpines which as i become a bit i don't know a bit more of an anorak as i get older the small really (laughs) small interesting ones i like and then i like the really big sort of uh prehistoric look things like sino Grandi which have got these huge leathery paddle shaped leaves you know just up to a meter long and a huge great you know so they're really big dramatic sort of jungly large leafed ones i love and then the tiny little sort of geeky ones as well so those two extremes really i think you know with with a plant group that's so diverse it's quite nice to have the sort of two extremes and know that they're quite closely related is quite good for a sort of nerd
0: and i suppose if you've had a lifetime passion for them the Where where there's so many, it's just lovely to be able to indulge yourself and look at so many different varieties, different species, uh, keep you sort of entertained.
1: It is, yeah. I mean, this time of year, I have to sort of forget about all the other plants that I've spent my career memorising to sort of fit in enough space for rhododendrons because there's so many of them. And then in about a month's time, they sort of... I forget about them and concentrate on everything else until the sort of spring. And then sometime just after Christmas, I start to sort of get into rhododendron mode again. (laughs) There's just so much uh, information to retain. So uh,
0: going back to rhododendrons again, when is the best time to actually prune rhododendrons?
1: Uh, I mean, it depends really what you want to do. So, for things like azaleas, if you're, we grow azaleas almost as a hedging plant along the edges of our path, and we will trim them straight after flowering because yeah. otherwise you're going to cut the flowers off for the next, for the next year. year yeah. So if you're going to trim them formally, and that's only really azaleas that you would do that to, you need to do it sort of as soon as they're finished flowering because if you do it later in the summer, you won't get any flowers the following year. But larger rhododendrons, I would really, I was told years ago, well, by Barry again, the old head garden, if you need to prune a rhododendron and it's in the wrong place, because, you know, really they want to just grow into the sort of shrubs that they want to be, and they yeah. are quite hard to prune, Yeah. but if it's, you know, if it's got a branch that's annoying you, or you want to remove it for whatever reason, then in the depth of winter, really, is probably the best time to do it when it's totally dormant.
0: We touched on pests and diseases very briefly earlier. Are there any particular pests and diseases that rhododendrons are susceptible to?
1: Um, yeah, there are, there are. I mean, a lot of them are quite specific to specific varieties, so powdery mildew can be a problem on certain species or certain pe- hybrids that have got certain species in them make them more susceptible so powdery mildew can be a problem i mean that's just a sort of annoying fungal disease it's nothing too dangerous really
0: so that's not going to affect the overall health of the plant yeah, it will just, still flower and will yeah,
1: still flower they just look a bit untidy and it can reduce the vigor of them uh, and there's lots of various various sort of petal blights that you can get in azaleas certain, you know some fungal things just make them go over stop flowering a bit earlier than they would normally but again that's nothing really too much to worry about it's an
0: inconvenience at the time of the year but
1: the biggest problem probably for rhododendrons is honey fungus to be honest we probably lose more rhododendrons to honey fungus than anything else and that is really i mean honey fungus is a native fungi it's just in our woodland soil anyway so there's nothing you can do about it but that tends to affect plants if they're. uh, if they're stressed out when they're getting old you know most of our roadies are now 100 years old so they are getting towards the end of their life or some of them so stress drought things like that make them more susceptible to honey fungus so, so. as you say it's
0: in the soil anyway so if a yeah. plant is old and stressed then the honey fungus is likely to affect it then
1: correct yeah, yeah honey fungus is a bit of a it's a double whammy because it's a saprophyte and a parasite so it can live on dead wood and also live wood. Most fungi either affect one or the other, but honey fungus is sending its bootlaces around all the time looking for something, and it can feed on the dead wood or it can kill it and then eat it afterwards. So it's a particularly... Uh,
0: oh, I didn't realise that. I mean, we all know of honey fungus, yeah. but I didn't realise it had this sort of like double whammy attached it does, to it. Yeah,
1: so And it's around everywhere, so there's nothing... You, you know, people always worry, oh, I've got honey fungus in my... Well, everyone, you know, everyone's got honey fungus in their garden. It's just a normal, totally natural endemic fungus. So it is just, you you know, you, so you can replant a rhododendron in the same hole that a, a, a plant has died from honey fungus in, and it doesn't mean that that's going to get affected any more than anything else. So, you know, you can improve the soil, you can break up the bootlaces, which it doesn't really like to be disturbed. So
0: these these little black bootlaces, yeah, which yeah, are synonymous with honey fungus. Yeah, the
1: little rhizomorph. They look like, looks like a black shoelace, and if you pull it in half, you'll find a little white strand through the middle of it, so that's when you know it's honey fungus. And... Uh, you can, if you break up the soil, they don't really like the soil to be disturbed, so just breaking up the soil, digging it over, rotivating it, anything like that, will break up all those boot laces, and that tends to slow it down quite a lot. And just improve the soil, and if you replanted a quite happy, healthy rhododendron, it might grow there for 100 years, 50 years before honey fungus gets it again. So it's That's not, enough, that's you know, enough. for me. <laughs> so yeah, so you don't have to, it's not something you need to worry about, it tends to be of a climatic effect, you know, of a caused it to be infected, really.
0: So that's pests and diseases. Um, in terms of feeding, is there a requirement to feed an established rhododendron azalea, or are they quite happy if they're in the right soil conditions?
1: Yeah, no, they're usually quite happy, to be honest. I mean, you can you can buy ericaceous feed, which is particularly good uh, for ericaceous, you know, camellias as well. sometimes go a bit chlorotic so you can give them a a feed and that does help but if they're in the right soil and they get enough rainfall they're usually quite happy i mean mulching is quite good with a well rotted we just use our own leaf mold so yeah yeah. nothing that's too rich they don't really like manure and they don't really need feeding because where they come from in particularly the himalayas it's some of the wettest places on earth so the soil although it's it's quite Fertile, it's so wet that the plants don't have the ability to draw up a, a lot of that nutrients is locked in because the soil is so wet. I so, see, so it's yeah, like yeah. Peat bog, really. So, if they have too much uh, nitrogen, particularly at the wrong time of year, they don't really like it. So, they don't need a huge amount of nutrients. They're quite happy if the soil pH is right, usually they're quite happy. It tends to be physical problems. So, you know, ironically, they come from really wet parts of the world, but they don't. It's like the holy grail of gardening. They like to be wet but well-drained. So if, it's, yeah. if the ground is waterlogged or a heavy clay, and they want the, the water to be running over their roots but escaping. So if they're waterlogged, sometimes that's another problem. They will start to look unhappy. And we basically just go around the outside of a root... Root ball, so to the sort of drip line of a shrub, the edge of yeah, the leaves, yeah. and just fork it over. That's quite usually enough just to let the standing water go away. Or even dig a little trench. I have dug a little drainage trench around them before, particularly in Cornwall where it's very wet. And again, that's usually enough just to stop that sort of so it's water that sitting, sitting in there. the water. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't like water. They really don't like so being wet, but well drained is what they would really. Uh, one. You
0: you mentioned camellias and chlorotic leaves, that's chlorosis. Can you just explain first to my, my listeners what exactly that is and what can they do? Because we've all seen camellias with
1: these yellowing leaves. Yeah. What do we do? Uh, I mean, it's, it's the same as what I said about rhododendrons in that, uh, you know, they're ericaceous plants. So the... It gets quite complicated, but basically the pH of a soil determines what nutrients the plant can absorb, pick up. pick up. So all the trace elements like the manganese and aluminium and all those tiny little elements in the soil is what the plant needs to be healthy. And the pH stops the plant being able to take that up, basically. So, and which, which is, which for plants, which are ericaceous, that's fine. They don't need all that nutrients. And if they no. get too much of it, that's what makes them yellow. Uh, so it's a... If a pH isn't quite right, and they get more nutrients than they want, that sends them yellow. Also, if the ground is waterlogged, like I said, you know they can uh, they can't absorb the nutrients that they do want. So it's the opposite problem, but the same effect. It yeah. makes them go yellow basically. So you can get round it by. I mean, people used to try things like Epsom salts and yeah, flour yeah. and all these rusty nails or yeah. that sort <laughs> yeah, of thing around yeah. their camellias to make them go green again. But in reality. Most of those are probably just physical problems, so it's either waterlogging or compaction or, you know, a good mulching is usually enough to uh, perk them up again. So. so some
0: simple solutions if you've got yellowing leaves on camellias. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we've to, we've spoken a lot about rhododendrons, azaleas, camellias, magnolias. What else do you have in the garden throughout the rest of the year to bring uh, visitors in?
1: One of the things that my predecessor, John Anderson, was very keen on uh, was autumn colour, so Exbury gets fantastic autumn because we have mm. quite a hot dry summer we get really good autumn color in the new yeah, forest yeah so we've got the national collection of nissas which is a lovely genus quite a small genus of trees mainly from north america and china which has got amazing autumn color the tupelos is that nissa sylvatica yeah. am i thinking yeah yeah we've got nissa sylvatica and there's quite a lot of cultivars of nissa sylvatica yeah, yeah. quite a lot were bred at Hilias at oh
0: down the road down okay down the road. yeah so
1: there's a really good collection and of uh, nissas, we've got some lovely liquid ambers lots of really nice maples so autumn color is a fantastic well autumn is a fantastic time to visit exbury and then in the summer, we've spent a lot of time in the last few years uh, improving the herbaceous borders. So we've got lovely big herbaceous borders by the house. We've got the new centenary garden, which is sort of modern and sort of spiky perennials. And we've uh, also... So what sort
0: of perennials do you have in that border then? And we've
1: got all sorts in there. So lots of oryngiums yeah. and that sort of thing. So it's quite contemporary feeling. Yeah. Uh, so what else is in there? Well, lots of different aquilegias and uh, penstemons, that sort of thing. So it's a nice mixture of sort of spiky and sort of... Uh, interesting sort of sun loving perennials Our uh, hydrangeas we've revamped our hydrangea walk last or oh, this winter as well because again hydrangeas do really well in the same conditions that rodent and camellias but give you flower in the summer so you know hydrangeas are a love, another lovely group of plants that we're sort of expanding in the garden because you know like I said we don't want to change the nature of a garden but we do want no. people to have a fantastic visit and you know enjoy the garden and you know people do like to expect to see flowers when they come into a garden so
0: I know. think yeah on, on a, a day like today I was stood outside watching the queues of people coming in and they're all talking about the colour and there's so much here to see sort of like at this time of year but that follows on through the summer with the herbaceous and then the autumn with your autumn colour
1: yeah absolutely and it's you know we're we're open from actually from March right through to November now so you know it was a whole growing season really and uh, you know it is important we want people to enjoy themselves but we want to give people a reason to come back you know the great thing about any garden really is that it changes through the seasons doesn't it so uh,
0: I think it's nice to come to a garden and for, for anybody that's got a, a smaller woodland garden at home just for inspiration to see what you're planting the under planting planting partners that's the sort of inspiration I like to see
1: yeah absolutely that's when I'm gonna. My wife uh, gets fed up with it. every time we drive it. I'm always peeping in people's front gardens as we drive along or walk along because it's always great to see what other people are growing, even in their own little gardens, you know, what people are growing where and when. And, you know, quite often you'll see a colour combination of something that you would never have thought of and you think, oh, you know, that's fantastic. So you know every day's a school day isn't it when you're uh, a gardener.
0: absolutely w- start talking about gardening then how did you get into gardening what are your first gardening memories
1: i mean i'm i'm lucky really that i've never wanted to do anything else so i've never had to worry about what i was going to study or what i was going to do really i i grew up in the midlands and my dad worked in a power station and you know he spent his entire weekends, evenings in his allotment. So he was one of these guys that used to grow, you know, a carrot in a drain pipe and knock it out. So (laughs) six feet long and all that sort of nonsense. So I was always (laughs) surrounded by gardening. It was just, you know, we spent hours on his allotment, which was fantastic. And I I mean, I'm really dyslexic. So I found school pretty hard work, to be honest. I didn't really get very far. but I was lucky that I always had I had really supportive parents. So my mum, when I left school, my mum encouraged me to volunteer at my local National Trust property. Just while I decided you know, while I had to retake my GCSEs, because obviously, <laughs> you know, and when I got there, I just thought, this is why didn't no one tell me I could do this for a living? You know, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And They were actually advertising for an apprentice, and they didn't have any applicants. And I was already there volunteering, and they said, look, why don't you go for it? But I didn't have enough GCSEs even to get onto the apprenticeship. So I, I had to, I think that Steve, the head gardener, who's a fantastic guy, he was my sort of first, you know, if you're lucky in your career, you find someone just at the right time when you need a bit of yeah, a leg up. Yeah. And uh, I remember Steve phoned up the guy in charge of the apprenticeship and said, look, we've got this guy, he's really keen, but he hasn't got a GCSE in maths. And they said, oh, I've got him. Anyway, they managed to sneak me on the apprenticeship, <laughs> even though I wasn't really eligible to do it. But once I got to college, I found that when it's something you're interested in- It's, it's easier. easy. And, you know, I was studying plant science and soil science and all the stuff that I really struggled with at school. Suddenly,
0: where did you and, study?
1: So we went to Cannington, Cannington College in Somerset, okay. which at the time was a really good horticultural college. So the National Trust had apprentices all over the country. And then we would all get sent to college for sort of a two or three week block where we would do all our college work. And then we'd go back to the garden for like five weeks and just, you know, work. And uh, we did that over three years. So I managed to do an NDH, which is a National Diploma in Horticulture. But I'd also got, like, three years of practical experience. So it was a fantastic training scheme. Yeah. And then I've been lucky enough just to be able to work in, you know, some really good gardens ever since. So, I mean, it was nothing but I was just lucky, really, to get on the the course. And once, you know, it's like anything, isn't it? When you find something you enjoy, it's... It's it's, easy. it's, It's easy. So I've been really lucky.
0: So when did you first become head gardener?
1: So I was head gardener... I, I worked at Trelissic Gardens as a gardener, and then I went to Tregothnan, which is Lord Falmouth's private estate on the other side of the Falestuary, as an assistant head gardener, and I did that for a couple of years, and then I went back to Trelissic as assistant head gardener, and then I think the head gardener from Glendurgan, which is a lovely little Cornish garden just down the road from Trilicic, Okay. He, uh, he actually went up to work at uh, Chatsworth House, uh, he was a guy that I did my apprenticeship with, so he okay. went off to work at Chatsworth, wow. a child called Steve. And uh, they needed someone on a secondment, so I went to Glendurgan on just on a temporary secondment as head gardener for sort of eighteen months. And uh, you know, it's not something I particularly wanted to do. Really, I, you know, I was quite happy. I mean, I'm a practical person. I'm not a sort of, I'm not a boffin or a, uh, you know, particularly academic. I've always enjoyed the practical side of horticulture, so I didn't really want to spend, you know, hours dealing with emails and looking after budgets and things like that. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. When, when it's something that you're interested in. When you apply it back to horticulture, it somehow didn't make it a bit as, easier. Didn't seem as painful, so I did that for 18 months, and I thought actually, you know, I quite enjoyed it. So uh, I then went back to Trollisic, and when Barry retired, I was head gardener at Trollisic for a couple of for a few years, and then the job at Exbury came up. So it was, you know, it was never I'd never had a sort of grand plan to do anything like this. It just sort of you know,
0: it so, really. so job as head gardener how much time do you actually spend gardening? because obviously there's going to be the administration i guess as a head gardener with a, a big garden like Xbury.
1: there is but i mean I, a lot of head gardeners complain about how much time i have to spend in the office but i f- think that's probably quite a lot of that is self-inflicted you know i mean it is a managerial job so you know you can't you can't expect just to be able to do what you want all the time but on the other hand you can't run a garden from an office it just doesn't work so I I spend you know I spend probably half of my time out in the garden you know I still do all the jobs that uh, I used to do 20 years ago so I still go and unblock drains and uh, do the (laughs) streaming and go off and pull up brambles you know so I do I do all of that side of things I don't just pick and choose the the nice yeah. yeah. you know know, we're a smallish team and I just have to get out and help so some days I'll spend a a whole day in the garden because you know we want to cut the grass before the weekend or it's going to rain and then other days I have to force myself to go into the office and catch up with my emails <laughs> but it's a quite a nice balance I mean I've made well Tony Kirkham who was the head well head of the arboretum at Kew who recently retired um, when I got to know him about 10 years ago or so he said he said Tom I said I never check any of my emails until 10 o'clock in the morning so the first thing I do is I go into the garden I meet the guys. I set them all off for the day, and then I go off and do whatever it is. I do a, so. I try and do that now. I don't even turn my computer on until I've 10 o'clock when I come for a cup of tea because otherwise you get bogged down and
0: yeah, you get caught in it even before you get out into the garden. So
1: that's my golden rule really. And also on Fridays, I try not to do any admin on a Friday because weekends are busy and it's just a, you know it's it's nice to be able to get out in the garden, but also it's a rush round before. You know, I always think that it's a bit like the sort of curtain up of a show. On you know, the weekend is coming, so we want to make all the perhaps bl- make sure all the grass is cut and yeah. everything's edged yeah, because you know, that's ready, for show time. ready for showtime. Ready for showtime. So yeah, Fridays is a gardening day, and then nothing before ten o'clock uh, because otherwise it's, it's it's fatal, really.
0: So you're you're here a lot of the time. Do you have a garden at home?
1: I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it's not it's not bad it's uh, i am lucky enough to live in Exbury village so i get a house as part of my job so it's a bit embarrassing if a head gardener's gardening I was the worst say. garden in the village so i do have some standards but i don't spend a huge amount of time in it to be honest because you know i I do a lot of it elsewhere, but I mean, I enjoy gardening. I, it's not a, I don't, it's not a problem really. I do enjoy doing it over weekend, and I get out in my own garden. And I also... So, is your own
0: garden a mini expiry, or do you have your own plant passions when you get home?
1: Uh, a bit of both. I brought quite a lot of plants up with me from Cornwall, to be honest. I really like gingers, all the Hedetiums. Oh, very I nice. Have a yeah. Of gingers, and I used to like growing all the arums and uh, you know, aracemas and things like that. all those sort of weird. Uh, yeah, a
0: bit, a bit tropical and tropical. bit
1: tropical. So I used to grow a lot of that, but it's a bit harder here because it's a bit drier. But, yeah, no, I do have plants that I'm interested in myself as well as all the sort of rhododendrons. Uh, Yeah, but also, you know, I've got a little hen house and uh, kids and stuff like that. So, you know, it's not not manicured in any sense.
0: (laughs) So, Exbury this time of year is fantastic, but it's a garden for the whole year round. Um, As I say, we talked about the perennial borders in the summer. We talked about the autumn colour. And, of course, there's the steam railway here as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've got a lovely little train. It goes almost a mile of track now. So it's been extended a couple of times. It, go around, it goes around a little dragonfly pond as well. So a couple of years ago, we created a really nice sort of wildlife uh, haven. So there's interpretation boards and a little, uh, some little pontoons when you can go out pond dipping and a little shed with information about dragonflies and aquatic ecology and all that sort of thing. And the train is fantastic. That was Leo. So Leo de Rothschild, when he retired... In the early 90s, he created a railway. He'd been a lifelong steam enthusiast. I think he'd travelled all over the world going on steam trains, and uh, I don't think he'd uh, he'd never had a train set when he was a little boy. So when he <laughs> retired, he said, "Right, that's it. I'm going to build a uh, my own uh, train set." Really, so he spent you know a fortune creating this fantastic uh, miniature steam railway exbury, which is a great way to go around. It goes around its own little garden. Yeah, so it doesn't go around yeah. the main garden. Uh, it goes around its own little garden it's got little viaducts and tunnels and all that sort of thing so yeah that's a really great asset and it's great for families you know it's nice as much as you know we love a garden and you know we want families to come and enjoy and explore the garden it is quite nice to have something else to uh, do as well so that's yeah it, and
0: it's again as a, as a local it's a, it's a garden I come to on a regular basis Tom thank you so much for your time today I know you're really busy it's a busy time of year for you so thank you for taking time out and uh, wish you all the best for the season this year yeah thank you very much yeah
1: no it's a pleasure thanks thanks for coming and chatting to us now I have to say I'm extremely
0: lucky with Exbury being more or less on my doorstep. And yes, it is spectacular with the rhododendrons and azaleas all jostling to take centre stage. But it's a beautiful garden year round with so much interest and planting inspiration. And of course your little ones will absolutely love the steam railway. In fact, between you and I, I love the steam railway and as you know I'm well into my 30s. What? (laughs) If you want more information about Exbury Gardens, head to their website, exbury.co.uk. And I'm going to give a special shout out to the wonderful Emma Mason for setting up this podcast episode for me. Thank you, Emma. So, sadly, we've come to the end of the last episode of this current series. Thank you so much for joining me each and every week, your lovely comments and feedback and your amazing reviews thank you thank you thank you now I'll be back in just a few weeks time in fact as we speak I'm already lining up guests for series four so enjoy this wonderful time of the year we've got a whole host of wonderful flower shows lined up ahead of us now and in fact, next week I'll be heading to the world famous Chelsea Flower Show to help build one of the trade stand show gardens. It's a first for me and I'm so excited about it, and I'll be telling you all about it when I come back with series 4. In the meantime, go out, enjoy your green spaces, your nearby or far off public gardens, your balconies, your window boxes. In fact, enjoy whatever a garden is to you. Looking forward to coming back. I'll see you very soon. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.